Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to hear your word. And we pray now that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear that word and to have that word applied to our whole person. We pray that you would stir our affections to love you, to love others, and we pray that we would have the eyes to see the value that is in Christ and being united with him. Lord, I pray that this would be encouraging and hopeful for each of us, and I pray that it would bolster us and ground us in a world that is difficult and that has many things that go wrong. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be back. Um, I thought John did a great job filling the pulpit last week, so I'm thankful to him for doing that. I gave him the longest text in the book of Philippians, so um, that made it a lot easier on me as well. The one I didn't want to preach is the one he got. It's not really how it worked, but uh, I was thankful he did it. Also, uh, a couple of things. I'm glad to have Delane and Roger here. I thought that was a lot of fun. I'm sure you did too. I couldn't see you, but, but I thought it was enjoyable. And then finally, uh, the Deacon Fellowship gave these flowers. This is the last Sunday in October, so this is the final week of pastor's appreciation. The Deacon Fellowship gave these flowers in honor of uh, several of our staff members, Suzanne, uh, Kay here on the organ, and Ann, who's not in here right now because she's with the children, and then Gina, who is our administrative assistant. So that's what those flowers are here for, and I wanted to make you aware of that. That was in the newsletter. But I did want to mention them during the service this morning. Also, October 31st, in addition to being Halloween, of course, is 504 years ago, I mean today, is 504 years ago, um, a monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, and it would spark 
what we know as the Reformation. It would birth what we know as Protestants, those who would challenge the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church and push back against those traditions. And one of the chief challenges out of the Reformation, one of the chief things Martin Luther was doing was challenging the idea that we earn our righteousness through our own behavior. And instead, he said, no, what Scripture clearly teaches, and as he returned to Scripture and shunned tradition in favor of what Scripture says, he said, Scripture teaches that we are made righteous or we're justified by faith in Christ, and there's nothing we can do. That's really the topic that we're going to discuss this morning as we look at Philippians 3, but I also want to make a pitch for what we're doing next week in our Sunday school hour. We're really excited about this formation plan, and part of that formation plan is in the same spirit of what Luther did 504 years ago. It's this idea of going back to Scripture, of going back into the riches of our faith and really learning what our faith is about so that we are equipped to mature in Christ and move forward forward in a world that is really difficult to move forward in. So I encourage you to come out and join us in that discussion next week. If you're not part of a Sunday school class, that's okay. We'll find a place to put you in for the discussion. And if you are part of a Sunday school class, I think you'll really benefit from having that discussion with those people you spend time with every single week. Now I have to say this about Philippians 3. This has long been one of my favorite passages, and I'm certain I've preached it at least one other time. Uh, I recall preaching it somewhere around 10 years ago. It's a passage that brings, as I've already said, the heart of the gospel of grace into full focus. And we see it so clearly that the gospel is not based on our own righteousness, but it's based on what Christ has done. That the gospel is about trusting Christ alone for our righteousness before a holy God. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not that you and I have anything to contribute. It's that Christ has done what we could never do for ourselves. And in this passage, Paul has a warning for the Philippian believers. He warns them to watch out for false teaching, teaching that would lead them astray, teaching that would obscure the gospel, teaching that would cause them not to trust Christ, but to trust themselves or to trust tradition or to trust something that they had heard along the way. Instead, he reminds them they need Christ. And this is something they know. He's already taught this to them. And yet he feels the need to remind them of this very thing. Look with me at Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, and we've talked about the word, it can really mean brothers or sisters. It's a comprehensive term in the language of the New Testament. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Again, striking that theme we've seen so often in this book. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So see, he's concerned. There's an issue in the church that he's addressing. And he feels the need to remind them of what's going on. And I pointed out already that he says this rejoice again. And we've talked about this over the last few weeks, that the letter to the Philippians is all about rejoicing. We see it again and again and again, this command to rejoice or this idea of having joy. And remember, Paul is in prison when he writes this. But what you need to know about this is that his rejoicing in the Lord has to do with his hope in Christ. 
Notice what he says, rejoice in the Lord. It's not just a generic rejoicing. It's not think positive thoughts. It's rejoice in the Lord. And you really have to underline and highlight that phrase, in the Lord, because it's really a key to this passage. Everything in Paul's life has been changed by knowing Christ Jesus. His union with Christ, being in Christ, is the most important thing to him. And it's on that basis, on the basis of that union, that he rejoices. And that he tells the Philippians to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice because you are in the Lord. And he does not want the Philippians to lose sight of Christ. He wants them to keep their focus on Christ. That's the reason for his concern in these verses. Before we move on, and we'll get to all the verses in our time this morning, I have to explain the central thrust of this passage. You can see it in verse 9 where Paul says he wants to be found in Christ. The same idea I've just been talking about. And also in verse 10 where he says that he may know Christ and share. And that word share is important. Share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. See for Paul the idea of being in Christ. Being united to Christ. Being incorporated into Christ is critical. It means everything to him. Everything else is worthless by comparison. Now I think this is a little difficult for us to grasp because this idea of being in Christ is sort of mysterious. It's sort of mystical. It's sort of abstract. We're talking about something that doesn't make a lot of sense. So we can think in terms of analogies, but there's always a warning here. Anytime we talk about an analogy when we're dealing with one of these deep mysteries of our faith, we have to realize the analogy is just an analogy and it's not perfect. It will always break down. So let me throw a few at you and see if any of these stick. Consider the idea of baking. Do we have some bakers here? Hopefully some of you. Yeah, I see a hand. Okay, so Linda will be baking everything for us in the future apparently. You know, so baking is, I, I know very little about it, but I know this. You take a bowl and you take all your ingredients and put them in that bowl. Okay, I've got that. I'm, I'm, I think I'm well on my way. But what you do is you mix those ingredients into each other. You're incorporating those ingredients into each other in such a way that they have become united or one mixture of ingredients. And I think this word incorporates important as well. It's why I keep using it. It's a helpful word going on to kind of a second analogy here because it's made up of two parts. In is self-explanatory, right? It's to go in. And then corporate is, comes from a word like corpse, you know, body or the Marine Corps, something like that. So we use the word incorporate when someone or a group of people become part of an existing body of people, a corporation. Right? So we incorporate them into that corporation. And finally, there's our word united or union, both of which come from the Latin word for one, unus. So one. So the idea of uniting something is to make something one. So the title this morning was United with Christ. The idea is that we become united to Christ. This is so important. This passage is all about being united to Christ. And that union or incorporation, whatever you want to, whatever term fits for you here, with Christ 
means we are brought into an inseparable relationship with him. And that's the means of our salvation. That's how we become righteous before God. By being incorporated into Christ so that his righteousness is our righteousness. So that his death applies to us. So that his resurrection is our resurrection. Everything that happens to Christ happens to us. That is how we're justified by faith. His righteousness is applied to us. One scholar writes this. I think it's a helpful summary. He says, union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. I think it's a beautiful thought. This is, of course, the basis for Christian unity. We saw that in chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because you have been brought into the body of Christ, you can humble yourselves and be united to each other. That's what we do as a congregation, as part of the body of Christ. We're incorporated into that body. There's a longer summary here by Gordon T. Smith. He says, Christ himself, his very self, becomes our true home even as we ourselves, our embodied selves, are the home of Christ. You see that union? He's our home and he lives inside of us. So we're inseparable. Therefore, we do not merely follow Jesus, though we do certainly follow Jesus. We do not merely obey Jesus, though we certainly live as those who do his will. And we do not merely imitate Jesus, though without doubt we follow his example. And listen to what he says here. Rather, we participate in the life of Jesus, literally, not metaphorically. This is mind-blowing, isn't it? We come to share in the life of Christ. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. When we suffer, he suffers. Because he was raised, we will be raised. This is the amazing news Paul is communicating. We don't experience this by relying on ourselves. The religion of Christianity has nothing to do with just doing a bunch of good works to please some God who isn't really concerned with us. The religion of Christianity is all about being united to Christ. And we experience this union only when we turn to Christ in faith. Only when we trust Him and look to Him. Then, through the Holy Spirit, we are brought into this mysterious union with Him. But there's always a danger. Here's the danger Paul's warning about. There's a danger that we will rely on our own righteousness, our own good behavior, our own, our, our, our own actions. There's the danger that self-righteousness will blind us to Christ. See, that's the problem with self-righteousness. It causes us not to look to Christ, not to be united with Christ, but it causes us to look inward upon ourselves. Or even outward in judgment on everyone else. Look at verse 2, what Paul says. He says, watch out or look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, every single one of these names Paul uses is inflammatory. This is, this is language that would have upset those opponents that he's writing against. His words are absolutely biting. He's referring to those who would impose Old Testament law on these believers. He's referring to those people who would come along and say, well, what you really need in order to be part of the people of God is you need to follow this aspect of the Old Testament law. 
And one of the chief concerns he has here is this idea of circumcision. Under the Old Testament law, the way one became part of the people of Israel was through this act of circumcision. That was the defining mark of being part of Israel. And one of the biggest issues in the early church was the role of circumcision. Because there were all of the early church, remember, coming out of Judaism, coming out of the people of Israel. You have all of those people coming along. And then as others who are not Jewish, the Gentiles are coming into the church. The big question is, well, if they're going to be part of the one true God, if they're going to be his people, part of the body of Israel then don't they too need to be circumcised? But for Paul and the rest of the New Testament, they're pointing out something. Something new has happened. Something new to fulfill and come, come in place of the Old Testament law has happened. People are not brought into the people of God by circumcision. They are brought into the people of God by Christ. That's the big difference. They're brought into the people of God by Christ through the Spirit. So it's not the physical act of circumcision that brings them into the people of Israel, to the people of God. It is the incorporation into the body of Christ by the Spirit. We can think about this another way, and this is important. Christ is true Israel. When you look at the story of Scripture, you see that Christ is the true Son of God, Israel. He fulfills all of the obligations of the covenant made with Israel. Remember, Israel failed numerous times. This is highlighted in multiple places, but one really good place to see it is in that temptation story most of us are familiar with. Jesus goes to the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And the temptation is that he would doubt the provision of God. It's the very temptation Israel experienced when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And we know Jesus goes to the wilderness fast for 40 days. There's a connection right there. And each time Jesus is tempted, he quotes from the book of De Deuteronomy, the very instructions that were given to Israel and the very instructions Israel failed to keep. And so each time he's quoting from these words, he's fulfilling what Israel failed to do. And so what that opens up for us is this. The way we enter into the people of God is through union with Christ because he is the true Israel. The way we come to share in the life of God's people is through Christ. And this is Paul's point in verse 3. Look at it. For, right, which is connected to verse 2. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh in this Old Testament procedural way. And then he says, we are the circumcision. You might even say, we are the true circumcision. And, and notice he interprets this spiritually. This has nothing to do with the physical act. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. This is, you could put equals marks here between circumcision and who. Right? Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what is true spiritual incorporation? It's not following this physical act. It is being brought into the people of God by uniting with Christ, by glorying in Christ Jesus, worshiping by the Spirit of God and putting no confidence in myself, in the flesh. My flesh is weak. 
My flesh cannot save me. Physical actions cannot make me righteous before God. They can't change my heart. What I need is a God who can act upon my heart to change it in a way that causes me to love him and to rejoice in obedience. And that's precisely the promise of the New Testament or the New Covenant. The promise is that God would take our heart of stone and he would, to use this language again, this is what the prophets talk about, he would circumcise our hearts. That is, he would make them pure in the spiritual manner through his spirit by the work of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about. And it's this incredible thing that we have. We are the true circumcision not because of anything physical. It's all about being found in Christ. It's all about looking to Christ in faith and repentance. And Paul knows this because his, his own credentials are incredible. You know, if we're going to play the comparison game of who is more righteous, who's done more good works, Paul has accolades that would run a list, uh, you know, page after page. Look what he says in verses 4 through 6, he says, Though I, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Why? Here's his credentials. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's according to the law. Of the people of Israel. Right? He's one of the originals. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew among Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Which means he was one of those who was so zealous and diligent about the purity of the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, he can look at that and he can say, I have kept the law. I have done the right thing. And yet, this is insufficient according to Paul. These are legitimate credentials. As I said, if we're doing a comparison of who has done the best job of committing to the Old Testament mandates, Paul wins. He can take the trophy and go home. If anyone can appeal to their own righteousness, Paul can do so. And here's the real danger for every single one of us in this room this morning or watching online. Every human is prone to self-righteousness. We're all prone to an overestimation of ourselves. And I think there's something in our cultural moment that is even highlighting this more than it has in the past. For example, if you identify, just think through these, if you identify with one of the two political parties... Your side is ethical and right and loving, and the other side is barbaric, inhuman, and evil, right? That's just how it works. So whatever side you're on, self-righteousness, whatever side the other people are on, no, they're not righteous. You see the self-righteousness there. We've even seen it with regard to COVID, which is a serious issue. But lots of people gloat about their self-righteousness over their choices. Right? Whatever side of the debate they're on. And we can step out of the cultural realm too. Because religion, in general, has always had a tendency to produce self-righteousness. Which is why Paul was writing this almost 2,000 years ago. It's easy to fall into the trap of looking outside at all the miserable sinners. And that's what the church has done, unfortunately, over the last few decades. We've looked outside and said, well, we're here. Look at us. We're doing pretty good. At least I'm here. 
But here's what we must remember. Here's what we must remember. It's easy to think that our behavior is what makes us righteous. But we must remember that our righteousness is found in our union with Christ. It is his righteousness that becomes ours. Love the passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The one who was perfectly righteous became sin on our behalf so that we might be incorporated into his own righteousness. Now, that's a thought that should humble us every day. And it should also cause us to rejoice in the Lord, as Paul said in verse 1. And it's from that perspective, as Paul looks at all of his credentials, and he says they're worthless. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of Paul's accolades pale in comparison to Christ. Whatever gain I had, whatever credentials I could wave, they all pale in comparison to Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord in order that I may gain Christ. Notice that contrast in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Gain, right? So that I might, in verse 8, gain Christ. So there's a substitution happening here. The gains of self-righteousness are incomparable to the gains of Christ. So Paul says, I want to be united with Christ. I want to be found in him. Verse 9. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It's not Paul's righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes through what Christ has accomplished. And we access it by faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here it is. How do we become righteous? By being found in Christ, having union with him, because that means we share in his righteousness. It is not a righteousness earned by our behavior. As long as we look to our own righteousness, our union with Christ is in jeopardy. See, the gospel call is to abandon everything, to abandon everything, to count it all as loss. In order to be associated with Christ. At the beginning of Mark's gospel. We see this illustrated. He tells us that James. And, or, or he tells us that Peter. Went out and saw two fishing brothers. Named Peter and Andrew. So they're fishing. And Jesus says to them. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the text says. Immediately. They left their nets. And followed him. Whatever gain they had. They laid it down in this very physical way, their nets, their very livelihood to follow Jesus. In the very next verses, he sees two other brothers fishing within their father's business. And it appears to be a large business. Jesus says to them, follow me. And the text tells us that they left their father's business to follow Christ. They counted their businesses and opportunities as lost because they wanted to be associated with
passage, as Paul sits in prison, let me just remind you of where he's at, wondering about his possible death, that he speaks of sharing in the suffering of Christ and being conformed to the death of Christ. So the idea of dying is certainly on Paul's mind. But look what else is a key focus. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And then in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection uh, from the dead. And when he uses this word attain, it doesn't mean that he's going to earn it. It's more of this idea of that he might arrive at it or that he might receive it through Christ. So the key focus here for Paul is this being united to Christ now means he will be united to Christ from now on. If he shares in his suffering now, he knows he'll be united in the resurrection. His continued union with Christ means that he will be raised just as Christ was raised. Because he will share in the resurrection of Christ because he is inseparably united to Christ. We sang it a little earlier, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Why? Well, because you're united to Christ. Many of you are experiencing health concerns, and we've had more and more, it seems, over these last few months. Our church has dealt with a lot. We've had uh, the cases where we've dealt with illness. We've had some bad news along the way. And I don't want to minimize those things at all. In fact, I empathize with you greatly. They really are scary things. So no sort of trite, you know, think better thoughts or anything. But I do want to remind you of something I need reminded of often, and that's the Christian hope. The Christian hope lies in our union with Christ. If we are in Christ, we will live like him. This is so powerful, and this is the claim of the gospel. It may, be, may even seem far-fetched, but remember that almost 2,000 years ago, in a small corner of the Roman Empire, the world was forever changed by the report that the tomb of a rabbi named Jesus was empty. And the world has never been the same since. And in just a mere 300 years the very Roman Empire that was responsible for the crucifixion of that same Jesus would become Christianized so much so that the emperor himself would be prostrating before the image of Christ, worshiping Christ. This is the idea and the power of the gospel, that you start with this small little movement, but because of Christ's death and the claim of the gospel that we can be united to his death, and then his resurrection, it changes the world. Being united to Christ is our hope in this world. It is Paul's hope in prison. And I would encourage you to take this passage to heart and consider the ways you may press into to be found in Christ. Consider the ways you might come to know Christ more so that you can say these very words with Paul. That all is lost if I might gain Christ and know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, I want to pray for us in just a moment, but let me extend an invitation to you as always. If this has struck a chord in you, if you're searching or you, you don't identify as a Christian currently, I want to invite you 
to seek out me or seek out another staff member or anybody you know in this church or, or, or to get alone and pray and ask God to show you the way. But we are here to help you with this. And it's not about trying to convince you against your will or getting more numbers. What we believe here is that this is truly good news. And we hope that your eyes will be open to see it. We would love to talk with you about that. And then, of course, if you're a church member or not a church member and have other concerns, we're available for that as well. If you're interested in what it looks like to join this church and to be part of a local body of believers, then we can have that conversation as well. We have a pathway forward for that and would love to have that discussion about what it means to follow Christ here at Monument Heights. So we'll be available. You can find some of us out, um, out front after the service and, and then others of us in the halls. And you can, of course, reach out through our website, through email or a phone call as well. But let me pray for us and ask that God would apply his words to our hearts. Lord, we are incredibly humbled by this passage. And our breath is taken away as we think about what it means to count all things as loss in order to be united with Christ. I pray that you would water the seeds of that hope and cause it to spring forth this morning in each of our hearts. I pray that we would find here an anchor in difficult times. I pray that we would find nourishment in times when we feel thirsty and hungry. And Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds in such a way that we can speak these words with confidence and hope. And Lord, I pray that you would banish any self-righteousness from our congregation, from our hearts. All of us are prone to it, Lord. It's so easy to fall back on. But we pray that you would open our eyes to see Christ and to constantly press into him, to know him and be known by him, to look to him and to follow him, but most of all, to be found in him and in his righteousness. Lord, I pray that this would be incredibly encouraging to all of us who are striving, who are feeling the weight of guilt and shame potentially this morning. And I pray that we would each find the hope that is in the gospel of grace that has been accomplished by our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Through his name we pray. Amen.